0: Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. In 2013, the Journal of Burma Studies published an article titled, An Introduction to Wa Studies. It seems that even as late as within the last decade, the Wa an upland people living predominantly on what is today the Burma-China frontier, still needed to be introduced to other scholars of the region. The author of the article was Magnus Fiskechow, He began it with the caveat that the article was by no means complete and intended by way of a brief introduction. But the article held out the promise of more, and now its author has delivered with his Stories from an Ancient Land, Perspectives on war, History and Culture, published in 2021 by Bogan Books. Magnus Fiskecio is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Cornell University, where he's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, Associate Professor in the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and in 2022, a visiting fellow at the Baldy Centre University at Buffalo. Magnus, congratulations on getting from the introduction to WA studies to what will be regarded, I expect, as the definitive English language text on WA history and culture for years to come. And thanks for taking the time to speak with me about it. Thank you so much for having me. Magnus, in the opening lines of the book's preface, you write that the book seeks to offer a new and nuanced picture of the WA people and their history. Why do we need a new and nuanced picture of the war?
1: Mainly because I think general audiences and even many scholars think of the war as um, drug dealing headhunters. And that's definitely not an accurate uh, description of uh, who these people are. And therefore, I wanted to present to put these things in context, headhunting especially, and also the, um, uh, the drug dealing, but in the
0: context of their history and culture, which is so much more. Give us some preliminary sense of that context. Who, in rudimentary terms, are these? Wa that are the subjects of the book, and where would someone find them if they went looking? The
1: Wa people are about uh, a million strong. Uh, we don't have exact numbers, but as you uh, suggested, they live uh, on the borderlands of uh, China and Burma. Actually, they were there first. All their neighbours agree that they have uh, a very long history in the area. And the international border between Burma and China that cut their land in two is actually very recent. It goes back to the 1950s, uh, 60s. And so that is where one can find them. There are also some uh, Wa living a little further to the east, close to Thailand. There's also quite a few Wa who live uh, in exile in Thailand, and some scattered around the world.
0: You yourself conducted your fieldwork for the most part on the China side of the border. The first chapter of the book relates your experiences of doing field work in those lands in the late 1990s and the years since. How did you end up there and what is it about the people and the place they inhabit that's held your interest since then?
1: It's a complicated story how I ended up there, but it does have to do with my interest in uh, Chinese studies. I um, have a long background in in China studies and I became interested in um, the issues around Chinese civilization. Chinese civilization as an idea and the life of that idea within actual history. Also, with its counterpart, civilization needs the barbarians as a kind of a counterfoil to prove that civilization exists because we have these barbarians. And when you look around the landscape in China, the Wa really stand out in that they have. Uh, historically been uh, something like a prime token of the uh, barbarians uh, they've been famous in um, china as uh, warlike uh, headhunters and they still occupy this position in the chinese consciousness so in short i was interested in finding out the wa perspective uh, what's it like to see this relationship from the wa perspective and that of course runs in also in both directions the burmese too have been looking down upon the Huawei as um, violent barbarians that sort of um, highlight the existence and the value of their own civilization.
0: Your remarks on barbarians, both just then and in the book, reminded me of relatively recent work by James Scott, not the text that you cite a number of points in the book, The Art of Not Being Governed, but his Against the Grain, in which he talks about what he refers to tongue in cheek as a golden age of the barbarians, in which it seemed as if non-state peoples who occupied areas in proximity with emerging states, but were not parts of those states, um, had better diets, fewer diseases, and seemed to have been generally better off. So I'm wondering how that way of thinking about the barbarian then ties into the observations that you have of the uh, people with whom you spent so much time. You make the point that these people weren't fleeing the state so much as keeping at a convenient distance from it, and that their position was one of anti-stateness. I wonder if you'd agree with Scott that barbarians had lifestyles and practices that were in many ways superior to those of the people in the states that they encountered.
1: Yes, I'm teaching a whole course on dead barbarians next semester, and it's absolutely fascinating to uh, think about this phenomenon in different contexts. But I think what is shared everywhere is that uh, their barbarians is not primarily specific uh, people, but it is an idea. It's an label that is applied to others by the self-described civilized. And we should recognize there are many barbarians in history and perhaps today that don't know that they are the designated uh, barbarian because they're living their own lives, they're handling their own situation, and they don't know what others are saying about them. Then there are barbarians in the Chinese or Burmese eye, that is, like the Wa, who uh, do know that those other people think of them as uh, barbarians, as dangerous and wild. And in this case, my argument is that they were very much aware of this and that they were making the most of it. They were using this as a deterrent that they worked up through actual violence and war, uh, but also by propagating the danger, uh, or the potential of more such violence to come if one were to offend the war. Uh, I cite uh, accounts about how The soldiers and uh, officials of the neighboring states actually often have been uh, gripped by this fright of the war, thinking of them as tremendously dangerous and uh, something they would not want to uh, confront. So that deterrent has been quite effective. There's another side to this, which I also discussed quite a bit, which is this way in which some people Talked about as barbarians take advantage of their geopolitical situation and become what another anthropologist that has discussed these issues, Jonathan Friedman, talks about as the predatory peripheries. So that is to say, the periphery of a state and empire with trade routes and so on that takes it upon itself to prey upon those trade routes and feed off it, where there's not much the empire can do about it because it's a hit and run. It's it's like a guerrilla warfare that against this empire, and it's something from what one can become quite rich. And uh, this is true in this uh, border area in between Burma and China that there have been several different people, including the Wa, who have uh, availed themselves of, of this um, opportunity. And uh, for, for Jonathan Friedman, this is one of several possible expressions of how this relationship between the periphery and a uh, state center Uh, actually affects the organization of the periphery itself, even its internal affairs. And that's a very important point that I'm looking to make, that another misunderstanding we have about the war is that they are uh, primitives, lost in a past where they are disconnected from the rest of the world. Nothing could be more wrong, because they have been very deeply entangled in the region's trade and politics for a very long time. They have engaged it with a view to preserving their own independence. And they've done that by making the choice to not have anything like a state organization, but a kind of a ground-up independence where every village and every person really makes their own decisions and only come together when there is a threat from the outside. And this is the ordered anarchy approach that Evans Pritchard talked about first in the Sudan with the newer and other people there. Who are a society uh, without a king, uh, without a state machinery. And my argument here is that
0: that is, in this case, by choice. And that's one of the really attractive and interesting features of the book, the recurrent argument you have about the non-hierarchical, egalitarian quality of Wa society. And as I said already, the point you want to make, as I understand it, is that it's not just that the Wa happened to be historically without states, but in fact that there is is an anti-state position. It's not that it's a secondary or inchoate, nascent state formation situation that they're in, but rather they're a fierce rejection of the state. What evidence do you have to support that claim? And how do the Wa contrast with some of their neighbors, or, for instance, those in other parts of what is today Shan state in Myanmar?
1: In terms of what is the evidence for the Wa having made this choice of not being a state, what I'd love to point out is a, a discovery that I'm pretty proud of, which has to do with one of the mines that was being opened on the Burma side of the Wa country. And uh, there, in the 19th century, one of the local leaders was in process of setting himself up, much like Shan Kings uh, had done in the vicinity of such mine, that is to milk the ground for the wealth that it could produce, and then use that wealth to build up a position of power, declare oneself king of the area and establish a dynasty. And what happened in this area was that this man was shut down. The war of the area showed up and said, you cannot do this. They prevented him from continuing with this process and uh, terminated um, what otherwise would have been state formation, accomplishing the establishment of another one of these uh, Shan-like, Buddhist-themed statelets that we see in many places around the region. That is my own discovery and I have other examples that I mention in the book. But in terms of ideas, I again have to acknowledge the debt to Jonathan Friedman because, in his famous book, which is uh, so uh, underread in South Asian studies System, Structure, and Contradiction in the Evolution of Asiatic Social Formations, he talks about other examples. He talks about the Angami peoples of northern Burma, and how they rely on local resources, like, for example, salt, that they monopolize to establish uh, a power over other people in the region. And he also talks about the Kashin, the Kashin being his foremost example in discussing the political processes uh, inside of the societies on the periphery. And he gives example of um, Kashin conquerors going all the way to Assam and beginning to set up something like kingdoms uh, that could have succeeded were it not for various reasons that caused them to fail. Of course, his overall argument is that once in a part of the world, if states have been set up, if there is already a China and a Burma, it's not going to be very easy for you to come along after that and set up another kingdom and maintain your independence from them because they have unimaginable resources in terms of armies, uh, weapons by which they can put you down. They don't want the competition. They rather would like to have you affiliate with their state and uh, profit from that mind that you have discovered. So in many cases, these attempts have Failed, not least because the neighboring states don't want them. But the exceptions are those cases like the WA, where the people have decided we're going a different way. We're going to have uh, our independence no matter what. We will exploit uh, natural resources, but we will do it in such
0: a way that it does not lead. To state formation. And uh, that's a, certainly a feature of the book, which, again, I found very attractive and uh, noteworthy, partly because of my own ignorance. And I am uh, one of those people who haven't yet read Friedman, but having read your book, I'm persuaded that I need to and with regards then to this sort of political economy, I thought one of the really interesting features of your discussion is how this anti-state formation, as it were, is accompanied by such a high level of political economic organization and sophistication in, for instance, silver mining, as you mentioned already. It's not just that there were interventions to prevent nascent state formation, but also that while themselves were producers. You say of copious quantities of silver from outside imperial China or Burma, and yet they succeeded in engaging in that type of economic activity without somehow being drawn into the sorts of hierarchical relations that we suppose, go to Scott's argument and against the grain, are somehow necessary for the conduct of large-scale economic activity, mining and transportation of extracted material and so on of this sort. I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm still wondering aloud as to how it is, other than adopting this sort of ideological position, if you like, that no, we're not going to engage in state-like activities, how it was possible nevertheless to balance those arrangements for extraction with these political and social arrangements. And why is it that if these places were so prosperous, a more powerful centralized neighbors of which people were after all wary for the reasons you've been identifying. Why those neighbors simply didn't move in and try and take control of them?
1: Yes, it's an interesting question. I think that uh, James Scott offered part of the answer, which is the blunt one related to modern weaponry, that uh, in our industrial era, the new kinds of weaponry that uh, came along with the 20th century, in the face of that, the earlier equipment, the the defenses that people had were um, quite easily overcome. That said, it still remains that the um, topography of the place with all the mountains and places to hide, it does make it difficult to subdue it altogether. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads often to a kind of a proxy situation. The current Wa state in Burma is semi-autonomous in a way. They get a lot of weaponry from China, they're not going to offend China, they're at the same time not directly within a command structure, you know, they don't take direct orders from China. their society has been completely transformed. I don't write much about the wall state in the book. I refer to others who have done much more research there, like Hans Steinmüller, Andrew Ong, and others who know more about the wall state than me. But I think it's important to point to as a contrast, the wall state is a new form of society, it's hierarchical, not at all, the egalitarian society that the Wah had in the past, and I think the root cause of that is that modern weaponry was brought in. In the case of the WA, it was actually the um, Burmese communists who took over the area as their base area, and uh, then recruited the WA people as uh, foot soldiers. They were reduced to this new role, and then in 1989, the the communist party had run out of steam. Their Politburo retired to China, I believe. And the ethno-nationalist elite that uh, runs the one state today, they took over this weaponry, this military organization and um, political hierarchy that's very much copied, uh, modeled on the Chinese model. It's a, it's a new situation. It's very difficult today to be like the war used to be in the past. That era, I think, relied very much on this deterrence that I talked about before. It was really as if empires and states surrounding the war felt incapable of overtaking them. They were afraid of them. There is another possibility, which uh, I think one should keep in mind, and that is that in terms of the Chinese empire, there were times when the imperial court decided to not go further, to stop uh, its expansion. There were debates like that about Taiwan, for example, should we really own Taiwan after conquering it, or should we bring all the Chinese settlers back and leave it to the barbarians? And one can speculate that part of the reason for that would be to keep the barbarians around (laughs) to not finish off all the barbarians because it's useful for the empire representing civilization to have someone Mm -hmm. stand for the role of their barbarian then of course One could also argue that no, they would just go further out into the world to expand and uh, find new people who who would have to play this role of being their barbarians. But uh, I think that this question of why didn't they just move in and take them over... A big part of the answer is the terrible deterrence that these uh, rumors and realities of why headhunting presented. That's a big part of the question. But it still doesn't seem to completely uh, answer it, and it still remains a mystery. And I still think to some extent uh, in um, today's Burma, one can ask the same question
0: you brought us to headhunting, and I I think it's time that we talk about it some more because I'm sure that there are listeners who are keen to hear about it. You were discussing it in the context of deterrence, and that's one of the features of the practice that you bring into the foreground, while at the same time you want to explode some of the myths associated with the practice. So Tell us what are some of those myths, and then what is it about headhunting among the Wa that we need to know to appreciate how and why it was that this was an important practice? I
1: tried to emphasize that it was part of wa- warfare. I really don't uh, subscribe to any of the theories that people hunted heads, and maybe even the term headhunting should not be used. I tried to say warfare or headhunting warfare. The purpose was not to go and get heads. This is the most common theory in the Chinese academic discussions of the war. People write about how they would uh, go get heads of the enemy to sacrifice to the deity of the harvest. I don't buy that, not least because I've put the theory to <laughs> many Wow people and they will laugh their heads off saying that how could you believe such a thing? We didn't use these heads for uh, anything like that. This was to bring home a token of the enemy to signify the victory and then of course for the purposes of the deterrence the important thing that they did was that they lined up these remaining skulls as evidence of their victory and that display alongside the approach roads of settlements was a major way in which this deterrence was reinforced while people would tell me you know we didn't cut anybody's head off for no reason It was because of conflicts over resources, over territories, and this, what's described as headhunting, is a part of this, bringing home trophies to reinforce the power of the victory that we had. I I then make the argument that uh, uh, headhunting in this sense is probably pretty new in history, and that's directly contradicting this whole idea that these are primitive people who only know to dance around in a ring and repeating the customs that they always had. They're not able to move forward or react to anything, which I think is the opposite of what happened. They were watching uh, and experiencing the circumscription of their territory the menace of the states coming at them at the horizon and they were also watching how chinese armies taking over south what is now southwestern china very often would crush the resistance from locals of the areas that they were conquering and they would pick out leaders and mount their heads on pikes and I believe that uh, the war must have copied this because it was done even in the vicinity of the war in uh, the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And this is something that they would have been aware of and I think that is also the time when they picked this up. There would have been no reason to do any of this before these conflicts came to the fore. So I think the story is the war were confronted with a new historical situation, they became the warriors that we now imagine them to be uh, or always have been. It's not something that is uh, permanently a part of their identity. It's part of their response to this new historical situation.
0: You write that... In all likelihood, 1958 was the last year or the latest time conceivably that these practices of the cutting off of heads and so on may have occurred. Why was 1958 such a, let's say, such a bad year for Hua, from the point of view of the elders, at least, with whom you spoke?
1: This is the time when both the newly independent uh, Burma and the People's Republic of China were being established and reestablished. And they had many uh, things on their agenda, but one was to demarcate uh, their borders in between them. And they were occupying this uncharted, undemarcated area between those two countries, China and Burma, that posed this issue. And they ended up cutting it in half. Originally, actually, in the 50s, the Chinese government had a plan of annexing all the area where wa people live so up to the salwin river way west inside of uh, myanmar that did not happen but as i understand it it didn't happen only because the myanmar government was negotiating about uh, Kashin areas further to the north where china got more territory and uh, therefore the new country of myanmar uh, should have more of the Wa area, so that's how they ended up splitting it 50-50. Of course they never stopped to ask the Wa people, what would you like? Uh, Would you like to belong to China? Would you like to belong to Myanmar? There was in 1947, right before um, Burmese independence, there was a Frontier Commission that the British helped set up and uh, there was actually some Wa delegates there. They were recorded uh, as saying that we don't belong under anyone, we are self-governing. So they were making that argument, but it was not listened to. Instead, the Burmese and the Chinese, they cut the border straight through and declared that this is the territory. The Chinese had been sending out advanced troops to prepare for annexation, and they actually withdrew them uh, from that western part. Closer to the Salween River. And I think this is one of the few times in history that uh, of the PRC that they have actually withdrawn troops from a place where they have already sent them in. But they did do that, and they backed off to the agreed new border, which cut straight through the middle of the Hua country. And then they proceeded to annex those areas that were directly um, inside of of what had become Chinese territory, which wasn't Chinese territory before. The new Chinese government uh, at first held off. They were not immediately destroying wa political, social institutions and uh, drum shrines and, uh, and all of that. And this, I think, is something that happened across the new conquests of China. You can see it in Tibet. They conquered Tibet, but they let the Dalai Lama continue ruling there. It was only about this time, 1959, in the Tibet case. That there was a an uprising, it was crushed, and Dalai Lama fled to india and actually, this pattern was repeated across China and also in the Wa country. It was as if you know the central authorities in Beijing had decided enough of Mr. Nice guy. We're now going to put them down and force them to be integrated into the Chinese administrative system, and this is where they started imposing the Chinese system, which is And on the one hand, secular administration, you'll have a village chief. At the same time, you'll have a party secretary who supervises the village chief. The Communist Party has the final say, the final veto. And whatever those Wa chiefs and anti chiefs and Olang that existed before, whatever those were, they will now not have any significance uh, at all. Concretely speaking, in that area where I was working, people were telling me that what happened was that the Chinese uh, authorities issued a command, everyone hand in their weapons, because every person is an independent person, of course they all have their own guns. And so they were were to hand them in, they refused to, there was a minor war, people were killed, and many fled, and uh, that was The dramatic turnaround for that particular area. In other areas, there were not direct violence like this. People um, gave up. Uh, There was no resistance. But there was this turning point that from now on,
0: uh, you're going to obey the People's Republic of China setup, and that's it. A reminder to everyone that this is the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network and you're listening to Magnus Fiskechu talking with me, Nick Cheeseman about his stories from an ancient land, perspectives on wild history and culture. Magnus, shortly we'll talk a little bit more about present day conditions. But before that, I'd like to touch on one or two more topics, one that we passed over but it's important in the context of the discussion we had already on egalitarianism is the topic of slavery. You recount that Wah did keep slaves and there were obviously then issues with the tension between the egalitarian ethos and the need to reconcile that practice uh, with uh, egalitarian ethos. Uh, This obviously is not a unique tension. There are other societies that uh, we know have Mm -hmm. encountered exactly this kind of tension or Structural contradiction, so what kind of slaves did Wa have, and for what purposes and how was this condition of slavery reconciled with the otherwise egalitarian social and political arrangements
1: It's a fascinating topic, and it really uh, provides a window into the uh, political history of the war
0: precisely because of those
1: tensions that you're pointing to. There are several kinds of slaves. One interesting kind is foreigners that were grabbed and made to work in mines for the Wa. Usually, the were where there were mining resources, they would give concessions to entrepreneurs, sometimes Chinese, sometimes others, to work them and then pay a tribute or a tax. But there were also occasions, some places where they kept mine slaves. Of course, that's in contradiction with the egalitarian uh, idea that they had for themselves. And I think the only reason it was possible is that these were Chinese and other people who had been uh, seized and uh, made to work in these conditions. It was not a dominant part of it in terms of the mining and other industries. It was mostly entrepreneurs and uh, workers that the entrepreneurs brought in who were not slaves that did the work. But that's one kind. The other kind is this uh, category of uh, slaves within society. And uh, this is something that I stumbled upon and I had to um, struggle quite a bit to understand because I, I read... Tons of um, Chinese ethnography that had been done in this area, including for the purpose of annexing it. And there's a lot of material, and a lot of it is is also very good, descriptive on what happened. And it did include this uh, these observations on people that were held as uh, slaves within households. Many of them had been bought from impoverished neighbors, and many had been captured in um, warfare between communities and so uh, when the Chinese communists took over the area one thing they did was to declare the slaves liberated Uh, they wanted to score a point we are here to get rid of the oppressive features of um, pre-socialist society and uh, liberating the slaves, uh, they even pinpoint in our society as existing uh, in the in the Engelsian scheme on the threshold between original communist society and the slave society that succeeded them in the in that uh, Engels-Morganian scheme of social evolution, which is, I think, crazy and wrong. But it served this purpose of casting the Chinese Communist government's intervention in the war area as one of liberation and uh, improvement. Then I interviewed a lot of people asking a lot of questions about these people, and I discovered that uh, terminologically there are some issues. When they talked about so-called slaves, or Chong, in the local dialect, it's not apparent that it means a a slave in the sense of a person who's socially dead, which is the usual definition that we apply in other cases. Instead, they were incorporated within the kinship structure where they ended up. And in terms of the people who were bought from neighbors, it was striking how they had a principle that one should sell one's child, as nearby as possible, so not sell them far away, which is the opposite of how slavery works. Otherwise, you want to take people as far away as possible so they're as much cut off from their roots as possible to enforce that social death that is the key characteristics of slavery. So instead, what I saw was a situation where. Economic change and disparity in opportunity between different Wa people led to this buying and selling of people, which you could also describe in terms of adoption for a fee which would cast it in a different light and would not make it possible to declare the slaves liberated unless you think of an adoptee as someone who can be liberated and returned to his original um, family so the way i came to understand this is that the economic changes that were brought about by opium cultivation, which did bring economic disparities, some people becoming richer than others, some people falling into poverty because they didn't have the resources of making that money from from opium. And that, that caused them to not be able to sustain their families and therefore wanting to sell off some of their children. It was the beginning of something that could have led to a dramatically unequal society, but the Wao were holding on to their kinship ideology, as if to resist this through denying the phenomenon. (laughs) They would frame this exchange in terms of the kinship relations that they were still maintaining. That's why It's so important that these kids that were bought as slaves, according to the Chinese interpretation, they were actually, according to the Wao view, adopted and should have been fine.
0: And just to underscore that point, this is why you talk of kinship ideology rather than custom. Yeah because yeah. of that attention to a set yeah. of principles associated with kinship that enable the persistence of these arrangements, right? Yeah. Am I getting
1: yeah. it right? I mean, I think of ideology in the, in the sense of Slavoj Zizek it talks about ideology and that which uh, you take for granted. And it's not even spelled out because everyone accepts that as the way things are. And that kinship was the, the number one thing taken for granted in this uh, historical period of of the wild people of course there was a wound opening up there was a gap opening up these kids some of them were carried a stigma here's the one that was bought people would tell me about uh, people carrying that stigma throughout their lives so that's a real effect of this that i argue was Denied and covered up under this conservative ideology of kinship. Because that ideology, you know, it prescribes how things are within wild society. And now is being forced changed by developments, you know, encroaching upon wild society from the outside related to the economic change with the opium export and so on. And uh, that's what they're refusing to acknowledge.
0: Opium, you mentioned it then. I don't want to spend much time on it, but earlier on, you remarked on a couple of myths, and we've addressed one of them, or at least one set of myths associated with WA warfare. Another is that myth, or let's say the unnuanced accounts account of WA as drug producers and dealers. That's what they do. Would you care to comment on that before we move on to some concluding remarks?
1: It's not entirely wrong we need to think of the production of uh, opium as one aspect of how people on the periphery of states can handle their peripheral situation if you can control a resource uh, such as you know land uh, used for opium and not suitable for much else then that's an advantage. Uh, it's an advantage that they were, were taking advantage of as as a peripheral people. It's it's one example of just like the Angami uh, Naga used the salt, and uh, in history it was uh, cotton or other things that were preyed upon in terms of trade route robbery and so on. It's Taking advantage of the peripheral situation, that's the historical context in which the drug production should be seen. And that's something that carries on, of course, into today with synthetic drugs. The convenience is that you're hiding away in the mountains, which is hard to reach. And that's why you're doing it. The politics today is different, but the broader geopolitical situation is similar.
0: In China, at least, Wa are no longer threatening so much as exotic. And this brings us to some of the discussion late in the book around how Wa people are commodified and represented for the majority population in that country and to some degree also in analogous ways in Myanmar through the production of theme parks, their appearance in different formats, in television programs. Can you speak to those aspects of the conditions for what uh, today and how people have responded to all of that?
1: I think the first thing is that self-governing egalitarian society of the past is gone uh, on both sides of the border. People are reduced to something more like a dependent, subjugated periphery. This curious phenomenon of a self-governing predatory, if you wish, periphery that existed in the past, that is no more. And the uh, day-to-day effect of that for uh, ordinary people is that they are uh, poor. They have no chance of um, amassing the kind of riches that they did have in the past. Remember, this is one thing that struck the British colonial officers who made it to the war country in the, in the 19th century, and they were so surprised that you know everyone else... On these peripheries seem to be uh, impoverished and uh, the people are few and far between but here are these wild people who seem so well off and healthy and their women are hanging all this gold and silver on themselves and where's all this wealth coming from and they they were marveling at this they couldn't understand this situation. And that situation is gone. It's disappeared with this historical period of their self-governance. Instead, now people are impoverished peasants of the peripheries. And um, in those areas where I did my research A lot of people are um, going off as migrant workers. You know, like so many other millions of migrant workers in China, they've been part of building those skyscrapers in Shanghai and uh, roads and bridges and railroads and all of that, that uh, migrant workers have sacrificed so much to build. And that they've been in uh, factories, uh, industries, and construction uh, all over. I went to... um, this theme park in the center and then encountered some that were able to go as the dancers, performers, because of this exotic quality that the wild people have taken on. They pretend to be themselves. So they dance, uh, war dances, they wave some spears and weapons, and they have uh, headhunting paraphernalia put up all around. And it's the most popular spot in the entire theme park because it's titillating, fascinating. Here are these Dangerous people who are no longer dangerous, (laughs) frightening looking, but we know they are under control of the theme park company that has choreographed everything. It was a fascinating and also sobering experience. I've always been... um, in favor of slow ethnography and moving slowly uh, but in the case of the theme park i was uh, pressed for time i remember at one point i asked a young man why don't you set up your own theme park or your own performance and he revealed to me that he actually had done that he had achieved a deal with a Chinese resort that he was going to have wild dances. He'd invested in costumes. He was going to be a little bit more in charge of the choreography of how his dancers would be presented. And it came crashing down because of a bankruptcy of that resort. He lost all his money. And now he's a salaried dancer at the theme park is run by a company that decides everything about how things are presented and they have no input Uh, I caught him on another day complaining about these drums that they have there and he he was asking me to make sure that I understood that these are Mm -hmm. fake drums that are constructed completely wrong and not like they're supposed to be and this from a man who was born after all the drums were destroyed in what country? And the only place you can see them is in a couple of museums, mm-hmm. in one in Kunming, and I think that you can see them in Burma too, occasionally preserved the drums. So the art of making a real log drum of the kind that they used to have, that still exists in memory. I was very impressed with that. I was also very sad and kind of disappointed when myself for rushing this question, because he was clearly very disappointed. He had wanted to claw back some agency over how his own people are presented. He was going to make money from it, but he was going to have some say over uh, or more say over how the dancers would uh, what kind of dance they would dance and now he was reduced to becoming another salaried dancer and he is revealing that to me as a direct answer to my rushed question hey why don't you take charge of this as if that was such an easy thing to do mm.
0: that is at once a fascinating and sobering account that you've just offered But it brings me back, in a way, to close the circle to the beginning of the book, because we began the discussion with lines from the preface in which you propose to offer a new and nuanced picture of the Wa people and their history. What we didn't do was proceed to the next line in which you add that to this particular agenda, you have a bigger one. And that one is concerned with an old question, namely, to what extent can humans take charge of their own destiny what answer do we get both from that anecdote and indeed from this book
1: well in a sense it's also part of what we have been talking about already the struggle to shut down the man who wanted to be a new local king mm-hmm. the struggle to maintain the independence of the war area the efforts to maintain this deterrence to scare off invaders and intruders, and maintain the was uh, their their charge of their opium exports. You can think of all of that as efforts on the part of the Wah to um, keep in charge of themselves and their own destiny, facing these difficult and changing circumstances that they uh, had, with the comprehensive loss of that autonomy and independence which existed in the past, and with the demise of. Most of that egalitarian society that existed in the past, it would seem pretty pessimistic that, no, you shall all be reduced to a peasant periphery like the whole rest of the world, and that's it. Uh, it would seem like that. But I, I want to stay optimistic and point to the possibility that people still can take charge of themselves. The historical circumstances today are not amenable to that on either side of the border for the Wah people but one thing that has happened is that because of what's happened they're more aware of themselves and their place in the world i think it was a fact in the past that they had a rather um, of a local based outlook on uh, their relation to the rest of the world now they can see comparatively with uh, with others around Burma, uh, around China, and around the world. I remember, for example, dancers in the theme park would tell me about how on Saturdays or Sundays they would bring in people from their village who work in the textile factory down the road they would come and, and spend a day at the theme park enjoying watching the pretense of a performance of, of war culture and commenting on everything that's wrong and off and how can they do it this way and and have fun like that and I think in, ter- in that process of discussing how is this interpretation of us wrong there's already you know the beginning of um, a taking charge of uh, formulating uh, who they are because they are talking about it you can have a young 20-something man who knows how to make a log drum even though he's never been part of making one, and it was decades since they made one, but he's holding on to that prerogative, you know, we're the ones making log drama, we know how to do it. And so there's, uh, I think, a fountain of knowledge and uh, consciousness and willingness to reformulate oneself. And that's not going to take the shape of an armed uprising <laughs> because that will only guarantee that you're wiped off the map. Violence is not the way to liberation. But the carving out the space for self-definition, I think, is.
0: That's nicely put. I wonder if there are some listeners who may be hearing us talk about the definite article and asking themselves, is it? not somewhat anachronistic in this day and age, to be speaking in these terms, uh, recognizing, of course, this is hardly an essentializing text. It's precisely not that. Nevertheless, in talking in this way and writing in this way, there's a risk of retaining a kind of anthropological gaze. How would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I'm um, very much aware of the variations within the Wa area. I sometimes mention the example of um, the week. I mean, that was unexpected for me. You know, I, I thought yeah, the, the week couldn't be a problem. And you know, it has seven days, right? But no, in some areas, the week had eight days. In other areas, it had 10 days. In other areas, it had nine days. And uh, people just were on their own because they were self-governing locally. They would decide locally what is uh, a week. And when you look at the diversity of dialects and other kinds of uh, cultural variation, you know, how you you drink your rice beer is different in every place. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous variety. And yet in the past, just as with Evans Pritchard ordered anarchy among the Noir in the Sudan, who were something of the same kind. People organized according to kinship in different tribes and then maintaining themselves on their own and only uniting with their brethren or distant kin when the politics and history demanded it, that is um, a way of organizing yourself that's kind of contrary to the essentializing category, the anthropological category of uh, a people that uh, you're right, often um, creates trouble when we overemphasize that. But that said, the, the reality is also that the wild people do talk about the wild people, and they talk about themselves as as an entity, and they don't worry that its boundaries are perhaps not perfectly defined. That's not a cause of worry for them.
0: You mentioned the, the the tremendous variety of practices. The book itself is, has a tremendous variety of topics in it. It's wide-ranging, and we've covered only some of those topics here today. Is there any t- a topic in the book that we've not yet addressed that you think needs to be mentioned? And to add to that, was there anything that you had thought of including in the book that you omitted for, well, for one reason or another?
1: Hmm. No, this is not a complete... Account. Uh, I remember one of my advisors, Marshall Solins, specifically warned me don't write the complete account. That's an impossible uh, project. So I think what I've done is I selectively picked uh, topics that uh, stood out to me. Also, because they speak to these central questions about uh, taking charge of yourself and surviving history, and um, I have to say, the one that stands out when I think of these things and my time there, the one that stands out is the drinking. That was completely um, unexpected for me. I did not anticipate that uh, while rice beer would be such a central thing of such heavy significance. But I discovered that after a time of uh, prohibition under Mao, it was not allowed to grow the ingredients that are needed for this homemade beer that tie people together. But after that, they were relishing, you know, growing these ingredients again and brewing this uh, rice beer and uh, lovingly engaging in this very elaborate ways of social interaction that it, provides for i describe in that chapter how there's only one mug and (laughs) the the mug travels in very intricate ways that all have a profound significance in sort of reaffirming the ties between the people that Mm -hmm. engage and conversely you can also disengage or be disengaged if you i talk about how they know that outside officials are very scared of this uh, rice beer because it's supposedly dirty and so one way of getting rid of them is to offer them rice beer i don't think that always works but i actually remember all this very fondly and when i think of this engagement being part of um, this sharing That they were setting up to sort of make and cement their their own community, and allowing me to be a part of that, Uh, I feel warm all over, (laughs) Uh, and that's why I also want to say that this is uh, civilization. In the other sense of the word of civilization, that is less often used, which is the civil treatment of each other, they're growing up and uh, together, they're becoming a community together, which is also the sense of. Uh, civilization. In a a sense, the the, the other, the competing in a hierarchical sense of the word civilization as somebody superior to the barbarians is almost like a hijack of the original idea that let's be civilized. That should mean let's be treating each other decently. And that's what that drinking is all about. And that came to me very forcefully and unexpectedly while I was there.
0: I did uh, really feel, as a reader, that feeling of warmth was conveyed very well, I thought. And I I had more questions to ask about your experience of participant intoxication, but at this juncture, I think we're going to leave it to listeners to go and find a copy of the book to learn more about that. (laughs) You were advocating for slow ethnography, and this was obviously a book that took a lot of time, was a tremendous labor of love, and um, now that it's done, are you continuing with your work to promote and expand WAS studies, or taking a break from the is to pursue other interests
1: the book has an epilogue which was written um, in light of the genocide against Uyghurs that is playing out in the western part of China right now and which in turn is part of a major shift in China towards um, fetishism of the unity of the nation and an abhorrence of the diversity that was tolerated for decades. Uh, I see this as part of a global trend, which we see also, of course, in um, Myanmar, of of a virulent, uh, intolerant nationalism that uh, cannot accept people who are different, living side by side and permitted to live in their own fashion. The future looks dark, in a way, because of this trend of intolerant nationalism. Recently, I have been um, devoting quite a lot of energy and thinking to process this and try to understand um, what it is that's happening in the world. But I still keep continuing publishing also about the one.
0: Magnus Fiskechow, thank you so much for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about stories from an ancient land. Thank you for having me. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others on the channel, such as Holly High talking about Project Land, Life in a Lao Socialist Model Village, or Jane Ferguson on Repossessing Shanland, Myanmar, Thailand, and the Nation State Deferred, or elsewhere on the network, James Scott speaking to me about Against the Grain. These are just a few of the thousands of interviews available to you on every conceivable topic and book via the New Books Network website or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.